Hi, I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Welcome to this week's episode of the IFS Zooms In, in which we'll be looking at the unique challenge of getting the economy going again. I'm going to be talking to Professor Rachel Griffith, Research Director at the IFS, and Rob Joyce, IFS Deputy Director, about the economics of getting us back to work. To deal with the coronavirus pandemic, the government shut down a large part of the economy, forbidding pubs, restaurants and entertainment venues from opening, while discouraging many others from going into work. It has put in place a furlough scheme, the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme, which has involved it paying the salaries of over 7 million private sector workers at a cost of over £10 billion a month. It's committed to carrying on with that scheme in its current form until the end of July. This and other measures, including a support scheme for the self-employed, were put in place at short notice. They've been hugely effective at supporting employers and workers and ensuring many millions have not lost their jobs. Government now faces the challenge of how to move us safely back to work, when and how fast it does that will of course depend on the medicine and the epidemiology, but how it goes about it will also depend on the economics. So Rachel, one of the first things I want to talk about, which is really crucial in this uh, crisis, is the role of uncertainty. We don't know what's happening at the moment, let alone what's going to happen in the future. And that really does matter for the economics of all of this. But perhaps you could uh, start by telling us in this sort of circumstance, what do we even mean by uncertainty? Hi, Paul. And uh, thanks very much for inviting me to do this podcast. It's great to be here. So, um, yeah, exactly. You ask about uncertainty. So the pandemic and and also the policy responses of governments Uh, have led to a huge increase in economic uncertainty about the future. So this matters a lot because a lot of the decisions that people take are based on what we expect to happen in the future. So when I go shopping, I decide how much toilet paper to buy, in part based on when I expect to be able to buy it again. If I'm going to be able to buy it again next week on my regular shop, then I'm only going to buy a little bit. But if I think it's not going to be there or if I'm going to not be able to go shopping for several weeks, then I may want to store up and I'm going to buy more. Young people decide whether to go to university and what subject to study in part based on what kind of jobs they expect to be able to get and how much they'll be able to be paid in those jobs. Firms decide whether to install new machines, whether to open up a new store or all sorts of investment decisions based on what they expect to be able to sell to people in the future and what they expect the profits to be from those activities. So as you said, this situation has increased those uncertainties enormously. So we always face uh, we always face some uncertainties. We're always taking decisions under conditions of uncertainty. But what sort of uncertainties are we facing now that are different from normal? So right now we're facing very high uncertainty about an enormous number of things. So that's what's unusual. It's unusual both the high degree of uncertainty, but also that we're uncertain about a whole bunch of things. We're often uncertain about one thing, you know, what's the weather going to be tomorrow, but not about everything. So right now, we don't know how long we're going to have to socially distance for, what impact that social distancing is going to have on our normal daily activities. Am I going to be able to go to the restaurant tomorrow? Am I going to be able to take the train somewhere? Will there be a vaccine discovered? There's a huge number of uncertainties, and, and that's sort of what makes this situation unusual. There's also uncertainty about what policies governments are going to implement and how those policies are going to affect me. Again, we always have a bit of that uncertainty, but that's much higher now than in normal times. A recent survey of UK firms called the Decision Maker Panel showed, for example, that in March 2020, 
COVID-19 was the largest source of uncertainty for about half of firms. So by April, just one month later, this had risen to nearly 90%. So almost all firms saying that COVID was the largest source of uncertainty that they faced. That's a very unusual situation. And nearly 60% of those firms said that they expected COVID uncertainty to remain unresolved at least until September, if not longer. So um, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty around, much more than usual. Why is it, given everything else that's happening at the moment, why is it that we're particularly worried about uncertainty? Why does it matter? Yeah, so uncertainty matters for a whole bunch of reasons. So, you know, faced with increased uncertainty about the future, it makes sense for firms to wait to undertake a large number of different types of activities until they're more certain so that they can make an in more, a more informed decision. So this means that firms are going to wait to make investments. You know, do I buy this new shop? Do I install this new machinery? They're going to delay research projects or defer hiring staff until they are more clear and more certain about what the likely path of the economy is going to be. So it might also slow down workers and firms' decisions to reallocate resources to more productive uses. If I own an airline, you know, am I going to stop flying my planes and shift my activities to something else? People may wait, delay those decisions until they, because they think that there'll be more certainty in the future. So this is what economists call the option value of waiting. And this affects not only firms, it also affects households. So if I'm more uncertain about whether I'm going to have a job tomorrow or how much I'm going to be earning, then I may decide to save more just to be on the safe side. And by saving more, that means that I'm spending less. And so that's going to reduce my own well-being because I'm not buying things that I might get pleasure from. But it also makes it less certain for firms whether I'm going to buy their products in the future. So that sort of increases their disincentive to invest because people are spending less. So greater uncertainty um, also dampens investments um, through another mechanism, which is through finance. So if if I have some money and I'm potentially going to lend it to someone, but there's greater uncertainty associated with how much money they're going to earn from that, that increases the risk. And when something's riskier, we usually think that investors want to be paid more to make that investment. So that also means that the cost of finance is likely to get more expensive. So while there's some other effects that work kind of in the opposite direction, we tend to think, and most of the evidence suggests that they're smaller than these negative effects. Wow. So uncertainty matters for for all sorts of things. It's really something that stops people acting. It stops people deciding. It stops household um, uh, spending. It stops businesses uh, investing. So that's something that really matters right now for the future of the economy. Given all that, is there anything that government can do, given that we do live in a pretty uncertain world? Absolutely. So, in fact, government does already do a lot. As you said, there's uncertainty in normal times, and a lot of government's activities are addressing those types of uncertainty. So there's tons that the government could do to help both reduce that uncertainty and also help mitigate the effects of that negative uncertainty. So policy generally plays a really important role in in this, in reducing uncertainty. Uh, For example, if we go back to the survey that I mentioned about these key decision makers and firms, one of the other things they asked people uh, is about, asked firms, is about the average effect of of the crisis on their sales and investment decisions and employment decisions. And what you see in that is that on average, sales and investments reduced by around 50%, whereas expectations about employment only reduced by around 20%, so by much less. 
And the difference in these numbers is due to many things, but in large part, it's due to the role of the job retention scheme and other kind of ways that government helps to underwrite the uncertainty and risk of unemployment. So it makes the effect on unemployment much smaller than that on sales and investment. So right now, those types of policies uh, can really help firms and individuals take decisions by helping underwrite the risk. However, policy uncertainty is also a large cause of uncertainty. And in fact, evidence from the US, similar types of surveys in the US of, of firms suggest that in fact, policy uncertainty at the moment is one of the most important things. So we know, you know, given the very high level of support that government's giving to to people, to households and workers and firms, we know that that's going to be reduced. Inevitably, that's going to have to be reduced in the in the future. But there's a lot of uncertainty about the timing of that reduction, the scale of that reduction, and the particular form it will take. And that kind of policy uncertainty it similarly has negative effects on decision making and on people's ability to act. And so whatever the government can do to make you know statements about the direction that policy is taking or the types of policy reforms and the sorts of timing they're thinking about that can help to reduce that uncertainty so government has quite a big role in itself in providing certainty to households and businesses not least it can be damaging if it's not clear about what itself is trying to do so uh, one of the things, Rob, that the government has done um, is to spend an awful lot uh, of money um, keeping people in a job or at least being paid through their uh, employer, through the uh, job uh, retention scheme. Um, they'll need to move away um, from that at some point. Um how how might they think about doing that and, and and how might we think about the pros and cons of the not well articulated proposals we've seen so far well i guess it's at the heart of the decisions here about how to withdraw this this huge jrs scheme which we really invented from scratch just a couple of months ago there's a a basic set of trade offs which is on the one hand if we go on with this scheme for too long or in a form that is more uh, generous uh, than uh, it it needs to be, that means obviously the cost to the exchequer remains massive. It's at the moment equivalent, I think, roughly to having another NHS in spending terms. Um, But it also means um, locking people into their original employer-employee relationships for a very uh, long time, and in some of those ca- in some of those cases, it might be better for people to uh, uh, to start looking for alternative employment, particularly where their old job might not come back um, for for a while. Um, or that, or or we would in fact want the firms to be thinking about innovating to find a way of making the work safe and productive rather than keeping people on the, on furlough. So, so the, the danger of something that goes on for too long and is, and is too generous in some sense is, A, of course, the exchequer cost, and B, it sort of slows down some of the um, adjustments in the labour market which, which are going to have to uh, happen. Um, obviously, the danger on the other side is that if it is withdrawn too soon, it could lead to a huge amount more um, unemployment and the hardship that goes with that and the potential scarring and kind of long-term career effects that might go with that. 
and to the, in particular, in in some cases, to the destruction of employer-employee relationships, what 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 economists would tend to call uh, matching capital, um, you know, where, where the specific relationship between an employer and employee perhaps has gone on for some time and is really very valuable. That person has lots of firm-specific knowledge and so on, and that can get destroyed, even though in the long term it might have been viable. And that's something else we want to avoid. Um, and we want to avoid firms more generally going bust um, and all the capital they might have built up being wasted if, again, if in the long term they, they might have been viable. Uh, so that's the sort of the, the, the trade-off, I, I suppose, at the heart of, of, of how we move away from what we currently have. Um, so one thing the government has already said um, that it will be doing in the August to October period this year is moving towards a, a cost-sharing model. So that, what that means is, at the moment, the government will pay 80% of a furloughed employee's previous wage. The employer can choose to top that up, by the way, but they don't have to. Um, whereas under a cost-sharing model, uh, the government said the 80% figure would still remain in place. So from the employee's point of view, if they're fur- furloughed, that's still what they would get. But they've indicated that there'll be some mandatory uh, contribution towards that from the employer. So the employer and the government would, would be moving towards a, a, a cost-sharing uh, approach. So it, it's a way of trying to withdraw the, the, the furlough scheme gradually. It's a way of uh, trying to, for example, make firms actually weigh up whether the value of, a, of, of, a, of an existing relationship with an employee is, is non-negligible because now they have to pay something to keep it going. Um, so it, it forces some, some decisions and it, it, it will make it less likely that firm, firm and employee relationships that have no long-term future just stumble on for, for longer than they need to. Um, but obviously, it, the risk is that it does start incurring um, more uh, more risk of job loss for those whose employers uh, feel that they, they, they can't afford uh, the, the payment, uh, as opposed to if the rate was simply lowered with any employer contribution still still voluntary. So in that sense, it, it prioritises the continued, because the 80% figure remains, it, it prioritises the continued level of support for those who remain furloughed um, at the... Uh, expense of more risk of of of, of, of job loss um, for others. And at the um, moment, it looks like they're going to do this. Uh, we don't know, but probably similarly for all sorts of different firms. And does that in itself produce uh, risks? Given that we know some firms may still be locked down, and other firms are perfectly capable of operating. Yeah, and and, and more generally, the, the balance of considerations here is going to vary for different kinds of people, for different kinds of firms. And there are probably some some decent proxies for how the government might rough, but you know, better than nothing proxies for how the government might try to differentiate according to those kinds of factors. So sector could be one. I mean, you know, there are some sectors where it already seems very likely that um, really the, the, the demand um, uh, for, for, the, for, the, for the product, if you like, um, uh, won't be there for some time, uh, something like hospitality. Um, and so we might want to think about that kind of sector differently from a sector where we think that, 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 that the potential for productive and safe work is coming back and we want to encourage that to, to, to happen. Um, now, uh, I think, I mean, it kind of comes back to a point really about uncertainty as well, actually, because, I mean, one way of thinking about this is that the government can try to come up with, with good proxies of ways of distinguishing between these different cases. So, you know, go back to the two 
kind of cases I was painting just now where you've got worker one who uh, works for a firm and they let's say they've been there for quite a long time they've built up a lot of firm specific knowledge that's really very valuable and if they had to start again with a different firm they, they'd be they'd be they'd be falling back a fair bit in terms of how, how well they're able to, to, to do their job or for other reasons they just really value the relationship they have with their employer uh, the colleagues they have or whatever it is um, and so for that kind of worker even if their old their old work isn't going to come back for some time it might be worth hanging on for somewhat longer we don't necessarily want them to sever that match and, and start looking elsewhere um, whereas it might well be that you've got another worker where uh, actually you know the, the 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 value of the specific relationship they have with their current employer isn't that high that they, they they work in a restaurant and if they if they ended up having to work for a different restaurant they wouldn't have lost all that much um, and it may well be that they could they they could retrain or, or, or direct their attention towards some other sector entirely um, and for, in those kinds of cases we're more likely to think that what those people should be doing rather than waiting potentially many months if that's what they would have to do uh, and, and, and doing nothing economically productive they, they they would be better looking elsewhere now now the government is never going to be able to perfectly distinguish between those two kinds of cases it can come up with some rough proxies perhaps like job tenure or even sector but they're only going to be rough um, what it really wants as part of the solution here is is for the conditions to be such that people can self-identify um, to a large extent as, as, as being in a sort of type one or type two person and, and, and act accordingly so if people know um, roughly how long they're old, how long they're going to have to wait for their old job to come back, well, then they are in a better position to to, do, to to at least attempt to weigh up whether it's worth hanging on because the value of their previous employment relationship is so high, or whether they should they should try and try and move on. So it's kind of it's an it's an example of where other policies getting other policies right, some kind of forward guidance in this case to the extent that it can be given. Um, uh, you know, c- could be very helpful because the government's never going to be able to distinguish between these workers perfectly. So a pretty tough job for policymakers over the next few months as we move away from the job retention scheme, which we will have to do at some point. Um, as I said at the beginning of this uh, podcast, the scheme is huge and it has clearly been very effective in the sense that whilst unemployment has risen, it hasn't risen anywhere near as much as it otherwise would have done. Um, but we can expect um, at least a couple of million people to lose their job over this period and possibly rather more by the time we start to get back to normal. Um, so when we get to that point, can government do very much to help people get back to work quickly? I think there are maybe three things uh, that I would think of here. So one is can it grease the wheels of that kind of matching process, that process of getting people matched up to the right jobs? Um, we've seen an example of where when so much of this is happening at the same time, it can it can be really inefficient and slow and therefore presumably need, sort of leads to needless hardship of people not getting jobs um, for longer than, than they should be not getting jobs for. In the case of the fruit pickers we saw not so long ago, where there were, you know, there were clearly people... Um, uh, on some level, who didn't have uh, work to do, and there was demand for their labour, and it seemed to take a very, very long time for the market to to, to, to sort that out, and we ended up with labour shortages for a bit where that would seem unnecessary. Um, probably particularly a problem in cases where you've got lots of small firms, where it's it just takes longer for them to, because there's the lack of coordination kind of matters more. So can the government help there? I think um, it could with things like uh, platforms for job posting and matching, at least in specific occupations or, or sectors, I say perhaps particularly focusing 
on areas where you know there are lots of small firms there are reasons to believe that the, the, the market left alone would take a long time to, to sift through the problem um, DWP the Department for Work and Pensions it, it doesn't really have the infrastructure for that at the moment and it doesn't do a lot of, of actual sort of active job posting and matching really and it might not have mattered that much until now but I think there's a strong case for it trying to, to do more um, I guess another sort of point two would be there are very likely to be areas where even if it gets that gets that right, there are going to be areas, um, given the amount of dislocation there is, where the private sector vacancies that are popping up just don't match match up well with um, uh, the skill sets of people who are looking for work. Um, and so one thing it could do there is a sort of direct form of intervention in some cases and, and actually think of those people as... As, as very good candidates to be doing valuable public investment work that will pay off later. Um, you know, in, in, if it's not crowding out the private sector, if it can identify where there, there are limited other opportunities, that would be a great candidate for, for getting people to do valuable public investment work on, on our infrastructure, broadband to help people work from home more effectively, whatever it is. Um, so that's another kind of thing that it, it could do, and I think there is an unusually strong case for that. Uh, it, it requires probably quite good data to actually identify where the where the best candidates for that are and it requires planning as with any public investment other for, in order for it to be effective and not not to be sort of wasteful so if it wants to do that it should think about it soon i think that's another uh, area the other the third thing um you know thinking about these cases where the skill sets of people out of work don't match up well with the skill requirements of new jobs would be training um, or actually i mean we 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 put something out at IFS um, just earlier today showing that insofar as there's been any recovery in vacancies at all outside of health and, and, and social care, um, it's been in, it seems to be in occupations that require a fair bit of preparation and training. You can, anyone can't just go into these jobs straight away. Um, and and, and it'd be interesting to see whether that sort of that continues as more vacancies open up but I think there is a potential role here for the government in helping facilitate or perhaps subsidize training because the 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 scope for the need for retraining is going to be I think unusually large um, given given the potential for mismatch between skills uh, and and uh, and and the requirements of, of, of new jobs so both of you have um, talked a lot about uh, challenges facing the government we've got um they they have a role in reducing uncertainty. Uh, they certainly have a role in dealing with some of the externalities that Rachel talked about. There's a big uh, challenge about moving away from the Corona job retention scheme, and they can do more work in the uh, in the labour market, helping people once we come start to come out of this. Once we do know that we'll have significantly additional um, unemployment, so that those are four huge challenges in themselves. But Rachel, I wonder if there are other things that you think government should be thinking about at the moment. Absolutely. And they link, uh, one of them links quite closely to what Rob was just talking about. I mean, in terms of dealing with the crisis, lots of uh, large firms are, are better able to do that in lots of ways than small firms. They probably have greater cash reserves, greater ability to borrow, and also greater ability to deal with what Rob was talking about, the problems in the labor market of matching. So there's really an important role for the government to play in supporting small firms. And you know, if we look before the crisis, um, the government had policy aims and long-term objectives at that time, which were boosting productivity, 
leveling up, so it was kind of reducing inequality, investing in infrastructure, forging a role as global Britain, and uh, reaching net zero and greenhouse gas emissions. And so I think there's definitely thinking to be done about how the government can both help us come out of this crisis while also helping to achieve those ambitions. Rob talked about infrastructure investment and how that could be targeted at places where there's high unemployment. It could be targeted at investments that help us reach net zero. The government could be thinking about supporting small firms to ensure that we don't end up coming out of this recession with a small number of large dominant firms that uh, both harms consumers, but also doesn't lead to a dynamic, growing, productive economy. Um, and so um, you know, one proposition that's been put out by, by several um, leading economists has been to think about creating some kind of investment bank, some kind of Marshall Plan for the future, to have some of those decisions taken not directly within Whitehall departments and do in, in, you know really susceptible to the vagaries of the day um, and to lobbying by large firms, but done slightly at arm's length by a group that's established to think about those long-term issues and integrate them into the short-term responsiveness a bit better. So that's a, that's a manifesto for a, a really significantly more interventionist uh, government policy than we've been used to. Um, perhaps you could just um, take take us through a little bit why now is a moment for moving to such a such a level of um, intervention relative to what we've done over the last 30 or 40 years? Well, we've already seen that though, right? I mean, the level of intervention we've seen in the UK and other and, and all other economies basically is an order of magnitude bigger than we've, than we've seen recently. Um, and so dealing with this crisis for all the reasons that we we just talked through and more even, you know, mar- markets don't function well in this sort of when there's these big, sudden, very discontinuous changes. Markets function very well when we have slow, you know, small changes and they allow us to adjust to the changing world when changes are small, when changes are very large like this, um, then then you really need governments to intervene to help put the market back into the right place. And there's a little bit true of what's happening with greenhouse gases and with big changes in globalization, big uh, increases in inequality, all of those things have really moved us very far away from the place where normal market mechanisms can get us back to a good situation. And so we really need you know, concerted effort, concerted policy to put us back onto that trajectory, not forever, but to help the economy kind of reset back into a good place, not a bad place. So this might mean um, a quite different policy for uh, for quite a while, right across the um, economic spectrum. Um, what, what, are there other areas, Rob, in the labour market where government should be thinking about um, intervention? I guess there's, then there's, there's, there's perhaps two, two ways of thinking about that. I mean, one is this crisis taken on its own has... Uh, shuffle the labour market around so much, close down whole sectors of, of, of some parts of the economy, um, that the the direct effect of this crisis alone um, is going to be very likely to create much more of a kind of mismatch between the skills that certain people already have and the skills that they might actually now ideally want in hindsight, given the different kinds of jobs that are available. And of course, I mean, that's going to partly depend on how persistent 
uh, or even permanent the impacts are on sort of the viability of different sectors of the economy. We don't know that for sure yet. But that's 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 kind of one uh, that's one part of the answer. And another part of the answer might be that does this just create a heightened awareness or or, or, or make us think uh, more than we would have done about the possibility that in future big shocks like this can come along, which change the returns to the skills that people already have and we want an economy which is which is more robust to that it might not be a pandemic next time it might be something else or it might be another pandemic um uh, but do we want a system uh, particularly this is this is relevant for for, for, for retraining you know for, for, for training during uh, the, the 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 adult years after people have left education for example a system that is more resilient to big shocks like this and and, and that can therefore where the labour market can adjust more quickly to a big structural change. I suppose one of the things that um, is going through my mind as I'm listening to both of you speaking about this, um, you know, at least for a period, very different role for government, is a question about whether we actually have the institutional capacity uh, in the UK to, uh, to do this effectively, because markets fail, but governments can fail as well. And it's actually a long time since uh, British governments have tried to manage the economy in this way. I don't know, Rachel, if you've got any reflections on on, on whether you think uh, this is something that government could do or what the risks actually are on the downside of trying to do some of this. So I think that's a, a real, very real thing to be concerned about. I think there's some great proposals out there by um, very senior people who, who used to play an active role in government and, maybe, and still do to some extent about setting up sort of slightly, diff, uh, slightly arm's length institutions uh, so rather than really having it within government setting up like an investment bank, where there is uh, there are examples of that in other areas, uh, international investment banks, for example, European investment banks. Um, and so I, I think that uh, it's really important that we think about that institutional structure and get that right. It is very clear that the government doesn't have all the expertise it needs and that government officials dealing with the day-to-day business of government aren't necessarily in the best place to take these longer-term decisions. Of course, elected officials need to play a very key role in setting the agenda, but that doesn't mean that they need to be the people that are implementing it in a day-to-day sense. Um, and that there you want more expert, ex- more expertise and bureaucratic expertise. And, and that may be best done at some kind of arm's length, like we have the Bank of England operating slightly at arm's length. That's an incredibly important distinction. So government can ask for things to happen. It can facilitate things. It can fund things. It can set strategy. But it doesn't actually have to be civil servants in Whitehall who are making the micro-level decisions and actually doing the delivery. And what we've learned, I think, from many decades of economic policy is often it's better to distinguish those two things. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I think we're in the, this is the classic time to be thinking about, the, about setting that institution institutional structure upright so that we get that right for now and in the future. I think, as, as Rob said, you know, one of the big questions on the table is, um, are we going to be experiencing other shocks like this going forward? And if so, can we set up institutions that will make us more robust to deal with them when they come? Well, I think that's a really important question. I mean, maybe we'll end the um, end this podcast on that question, Rob. I mean, what, what we've seen is the government um, you know, really playing this extraordinary role as an insurer um, for employers and employees 
in a way that it's really stepped back from um, in welfare policy over the last 70 years, really. Uh, I wonder whether there are lessons in this for how we might be thinking about the government and its role in in providing um, benefits and, uh, and insurance in the face of these kinds of crises. Well, quite possibly. I mean, it's, it's, so it's very noticeable that we had to set up, basically from scratch, this huge system of, of earnings replacement, essentially, which is what the, the JRS is, um, where other countries already had something much more akin to that already in place. Um, and now, I mean, it's not a, a cut and dry thing. There, there, are, there are difficulties of relying, for example, solely on some kind of uh, contributions-based system where 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 you're you know you, you pay some money in when you're working and then you're entitled to some fraction of your earnings um, later if you fall on hard times. In particular, you know what do you do then about people who obviously are in need but don't have the the, the, con- the requisite contributions history? Um, you, you still need to supplement that with something like more like what we have had now for many years, which is essentially a, a means-tested safety net. Um, but you know what we've seen in this crisis is that one one of the one of the difficulties about about relying on that sort of means tested safety net um, is that in 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 a crisis like this it, it highlights this that there are people who uh, who could lose uh, their uh, livelihoods who might not be the kind of people who are used to. Um, thinking about uh, relying on the welfare state. They never expected uh, this. They had costs and spending commitments that were commensurate with their relatively decent incomes. And suddenly, when they do experience shock, um, the kind of replacement that they get, the income replacement that they get from a system like we had, is just not going to be enough to to tie them over in, in some cases, even for a short period. Um, so I, I think it may make us rethink that. I mean, there are other issues too, like the, the, the groups who fall more between the cracks in a crisis like this. Um, this is already getting some attention, but it's now getting even more. You know, some, some of the people in more um, informal kinds of work, um, uh, the self-employed and other people on the boundary between self-employment and, and employees. Um, and so uh, having a, a, a system that, is, that, that can uh, properly ensure those kinds of people, uh, migrants as well, um, I think that's you know that, that's another set of issues uh, that, that that will probably have a rethink. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how all of this interacts with changing public attitudes and therefore the sort of political economy of welfare policy. Um, with so many people now having experienced the welfare system themselves than was the case before, and even for everyone else just having seen what's happened, they might think rather differently about the role of the welfare system than they did before as a sort of an, an insurance mechanism rather than the, just something that's there to to prop up the incomes of, of a sort of unchanging lump of benefit recipients, which is, I think, how often they're thought of. So there's lots of, 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 of unknowns about how attitudes will, 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 will change, and that, that, of course, will also shape policy. I think that's a, that's a great uh, example of how the experience that we're all having over this period, the experience that government is having of intervening in a way that it has never done before, the experience many people are having of working at home, the experience that people who never thought they would have done are ending up relying on benefits could change uh, the political debate really quite fundamentally for a period. And as both Rachel and Rob have said, there's a really good reason uh, for that. There's a very good reason for seeing government being more interventionist for a period because the market has broken down as a result of um, the pandemic and our responses to it. Uh, there will then uh, again be uh, challenges of withdrawing from that level of 
uh, intervention, just as we have uh, the challenges of withdrawing from the job retention scheme that we've touched on earlier. Uh, We've covered a huge amount of uh, ground uh, today, Um, but for now, I think it's probably time to end on that topic. Um, Thank you again for joining us at the IFS Zooms In. Um, We do hope you can join us uh, next week as well as we continue uh, to unpack the unprecedented effects of this uh, pandemic because there's far more to cover even even in the big set of issues we covered today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.